This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Dr. King is also the director of benign gynecologic surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. So I am absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Caprice Greenberg on our episode today. I've been dying to get her on our podcast for the past few months, and I'm so happy that she's able to join us this morning. So Dr. Greenberg is currently coming from Madison, Wisconsin, where she is a professor within the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Dr. Greenberg completed her general surgery residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and stayed in Boston to complete a fellowship in surgical oncology and currently focuses in benign and malignant breast pathology. She's been in Madison now since 2011, which is where our paths crossed a few years ago in the area of surgical coaching. And this has been an area of interest for Dr. Greenberg since her time in Boston. So thanks again, Dr. Greenberg, for coming today. I'm thrilled to have you. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you about this. I know. So we are going to end up focusing a lot on surgical coaching. I'm telling you, though, Caprice, we're going to have you back on our show in the future to talk about some of the gender disparities research that you've done as well. Dr. Greenberg gave the 2017 president address for the Association for Academic Surgeons. It's called Sticky Floors and Glass Ceilings. And I'm telling you, that's one of the best addresses I've heard. So we'll have you back in the future to talk about some of that research as well. Awesome. So before we dive into a lot of the surgical coaching details, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and your background. So where are you from? I'm originally from Chicago. So moving back to Madison was kind of like coming home. I'm about two, two and a half hours from the rest of my family, which is really nice. That is really nice. And are you the only physician in your family? I am. Yep. So what brought you down that path? How did you get interested in medicine? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I grew up in a neighborhood where most of the people are policemen. In fact, my sister is currently a lieutenant in the Chicago Police Department. My dad was a police officer. And, you know, I had been interested in medicine kind of all along. I was interested in finding a job where it seemed to me as somebody who didn't know a single doctor growing up, but seemed like you could make a decent living and actually make a difference in people's lives. And so, you know, as I learned more and more about it throughout my life, was more and more drawn to medicine as a career. And so even before I started college, I actually started working in a neuroscience lab at the University of Chicago. And so did lab-based science for, you know, throughout college and the first couple of years of medical school. And then really realized that that probably was not where I wanted it to be because the pace was just a little bit inconsistent with the pace at which I tend to live my life. And so, um, yeah, eventually ended up in surgery, ended up at the Brigham, and then sort of down this patient safety, quality of care pathway that I found myself. Wow. I'm sure your dad was thrilled at your scholarship. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so let's get into some of our surgical coaching discussion. So what piqued your interest about the idea of surgical coaching initially? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was doing my research time during residency, so right around 2000, 
I got very interested in looking at intraoperative performance. And so that was the first time that I really got hooked up with human factors and systems engineers and kind of looking from an engineering standpoint at how performance and processes lead to certain outcomes from the operating room. And really was one of the first people to go in and start doing observational studies in the OR. Um, and so, you know, for the first time really started looking into this, you know, black box of the operating room where nobody really looks at what we do, right? Up until that point, we'd really thought of operative risk as the preoperative risk factors the patient brings to the table. And we've thought of outcomes as how they do after the operation. And we haven't given much thought to what happened intraoperatively. And pretty Soon after I started looking at what was happening in the OR, it became really clear the incredible role that the attending surgeon played in how things went. From you know not only a technical standpoint, but also from an interpersonal and a leadership standpoint. And so, you know, I did a bunch of work around applying human factors, engineering principles to the OR, identifying things that increase resilience or decrease safety, and try to really understand how we could make the OR a safer place, focusing on things like communication and how the instrument and the sponge counts work, like those types of things were where we were really working. And by the time I finished training towards the end of 2000 of the 2000s people had become a little bit more comfortable with the concept of video recording in the operating room and so where we were doing field observations where we would actually go out into the operating room and record what was happening we were able to get a much more accurate depiction of what happened by video recording and so we found ourselves with all of these video recordings and we were trying to figure out what could we do to help improve this. And so we, our, our research group started talking about the concept of coaching, that people used coaching in athletics and you know music and all these other places, yet we didn't do it in surgery. And so did our first kind of demonstration project of the concept, proof of concept, when um, I was at the Brigham. And um, Atul Gwandi wrote a New Yorker article about it, and we wrote an academic paper as well. And then I, you know, the, the fascinating thing for me was sitting there watching these people, many of whom had been in practice for 20, 30, even 40 years, some of our participants, and them really learning something. And then them being able to go back and make changes in their practice and sort of recognizing that, you know, as somebody who was newly into practice, I was really noticing the vacuum of somebody across the table to give me hints on how to continue to improve and recognize that we really don't have a structured way to do that. And so I was sort of sold on the concepts 11 years ago. So 2009 was kind of when we started working this space. It's amazing. And you've stayed committed to this since that time. And I know you moved to Wisconsin and really started pushing that through since you've been in Madison. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the, the move here was really awesome because, you know, it allowed us, because of it being a smaller community, to get in with the Badgers coaches, get into the School of Music, really kind of delve into and do some of these case studies to try to understand how coaching was applied in other fields. And I know this is a question that we get a lot. You know, I am also very big on surgical coaching with you. And, and I've heard this question come up to you and myself a lot is, you know, I'm already doing coaching every day with my residents, with my fellows in the operating room. So I'm just curious, what is your thoughts about the difference between being a mentor, being a teacher and being a coach? I think they all have very important roles, but what is the exact difference between those three things? I think that's a great question. And yes, that is one of the most common things I hear, right? Oh, that's just a fancy new name for something we already do. And I really do 
up until recently have not seen coaching principles applied in certain surgical or medical education at all. And so I think what that shows really is the amount of education that needs to take place in terms of getting people to get past this idea that they know what coaching is and have an open mind in terms of understanding how it might be different. There actually was a paper that was published several years ago in Annals of Surgery by a group out of Canada where they actually interviewed attending surgeons and asked them if they would be open to surgical coaching. And Mary Klingensmith, who was the chair of the American Board of Surgery at the time, and I wrote an editorial that sort of disputed every one of the points people brought up and said that they were actually saying what they want is coaching. And they just didn't recognize that it really aligned with what they were using as reasons to avoid it. So in my mind, if you think about teaching, mentoring, and coaching, Coaching almost on a spectrum. As you move from teaching through mentoring to coaching, the learner or the person who is receiving the education or the improvement activities is increasingly responsible for the activities. So a teacher really is completely responsible for what they are transmitting to the students, right? A mentor, it's more of a bi-directional Both people are invested, both people share in the responsibility. And with coaching, really the responsibility primarily relies on the person who's the coachee and the coach is there in service of that coachee who is driving the educational interaction. The other thing that I think is very different is the level of expertise and the hierarchy between the participants. Again, so a teacher to a student, very clear hierarchy, right? A mentor to a mentee, they're both probably at the same level, one of which is more senior in at that level. And again, in both of those types of relationships, the more senior person has some kind of knowledge or experience that the other person doesn't, and they're trying to impart that knowledge or that experience to the other person. With coaching, really, the person who is the coach doesn't necessarily have more experience or more knowledge. Rather, they are really there as an instrument to try to draw out of the person being coached the knowledge and the experience they already have and identify for things that they want to change and try to do differently. And so it's really a very, very different dynamic and one that that is subtle enough that it's not super easy to get people to, to change that mind frame, but I think once people do, it's, it's quite obvious. And I think that the other point when it comes back to the other types of relationships with fellows and residents is that you can employ coaching principles in those settings, but it's never pure coaching, right? Because there's always some kind of a teaching, mentoring kind of relationship there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's funny, I'm just coming out of an eight-hour lecture series just today at Cleveland Clinic where we went over all these type of principles for coaching. And I think you nailed it in that I agree that coaching is more of directing a self-reflective process, right? So yeah, you're um, bringing out the, the coachee's goals and passions and having them actually direct the conversation, which I feel like is very hard for physicians when we've been trained in this problem-solving approach, right? Even with patients, like we're trained to be like, what's your problem? This is how we're going to fix it. And coaching, you have to switch that off, which I think is hard, but it is so much, in my opinion, so much more powerful at achieving adult learning and actually reaching the goals of the coachee. Right. So the problem-solving piece, I think the other two mindsets that really are difficult for us as surgeons and as physicians is that expert mentality of I know all the answers, right? Which, again, we have to have that when we you know, go into the operating room. And then the concept of questions versus advocating. And that, I think, goes well beyond just 
surgery, it's a societal problem, right? Where we know that we spend 80% of our time advocating for our own position and less than 20% of our time actually asking questions and listening to someone else. Whereas coaching is really about flipping that and perhaps even going further towards the inquiry, the um, really digging to understand the perspective of the person you're talking to, which is not something that is traditionally valued in our society. Exactly. Going deeper, going deeper from the superficial talk and, and building off of what you just said, I think listening for the act of listening, I think so many times when we're listening, we're not, we're actually trying to formulate what we're going to respond with. We're not actually just taking in what that person's saying. So I think that's a really important part of being a good coach is actually being present, listening and valuing what they're saying and not thinking about how to respond, but just literally taking what they're saying for what they're saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we do, we spend a lot of time in our coach training talking about the different stages of listening and the different types of inquiry that can go along with the different types of listening. Um, And it's really rare that you truly are listening in service to someone else outside of something like a coaching interaction. I remember the professional coach that I work with, Janet Dombrowski, she always quotes the surgeon from our Michigan program who said to her, this just made me a better person. Like my wife noticed the difference because I listened better and differently. And so, you know, it's really hard to think of a downside to participating in a, in a program like this. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a really good point. So in your opinion, what attributes make up a really good coach? Yeah, so that was a part of our research and our case studies and asking people in other disciplines, like how do they decide who's a good coach? And then we have now had enough people that we've trained in enough programs we've been involved in that we really are starting to see some of these different patterns start to emerge. So to answer the question most simply, good coaches are people who have good communication skills, good learning skills, the things we've been talking about, but also who have the ability to read people and to adapt and to change their styles of interactions to meet the needs of the person that they're working with. So really, I kind of think of it as people who have a high emotional IQ, people who have a high EQ, as well as the other thing that we found is that people who are called for intraoperative consults and for surgical coaching tend to be the people that have the right personality and skill set. They are able to come in and not be judgmental, assess a situation, help someone without making them feel less than in how they do it. And um, I think that that takes a really, in some ways, special kind of person to be able to do. We have tried a number of different validated instruments to try to see if we could identify characteristics of surgeons based on multiple choice tests that would allow us to figure out who was going to be a good coach or a bad coach. And we've, we've published some of those results, not nearly as clear as we had sort of hoped that it would be, but we're continuing to, I think that's an active line of investigation that needs to be continued to try to figure out you know, who has the best potential to be a coach. The other way to think about it is that by the end, once people are trained and have some experience, most people are actually pretty competent at coaching. So in some ways, it's not that there are certain people who can't be coached. It's actually that probably most people can learn some aspect of these principles. Um, it's just how long it'll take people to get there and whether or not it's something that, that they enjoy. And I know with your research, you also looked at who coaches wanted to be their coach, right? And I know your population of coaches wanted the top tier of expert surgeons to be their coaches. In your opinion, do you think you need to be an expert surgeon to be a good coach? 
So my personal opinion is actually that it may actually be detrimental to be the best technical surgeon to try to be a coach. And, and I'll explain that in a second. I did just want to clarify that we've done a couple of different approaches to identifying coaches. So the project that you were speaking about was in Michigan, where they had used a technical assessment. So they all knew where they were on the scale. And they all said, you know, we want somebody at the top. So we only had the top 20%. In some of our other programs, like here in Wisconsin, we had peers nominate surgeons that they thought had the right characteristics and that were respected within the field. And I think that is an, actually an excellent way to get the right people to be coaches. And so we have a current research project with the America's Hernia Society Quality Collaborative where we're repeating that. And again, I think the people that have shown up for our training programs have really been able to grasp the concepts we're trying to get across really um, quick and really understand what coaching is about in a way that I'm not sure everybody would. So back to that issue of why I think if you're a technically gifted surgeon, you might that might actually be a negative in terms of being a coach. I think sometimes the people for whom activities come the easiest, they think the least about how they do them. And so they're not used to doing their own self-assessment in the way that somebody who might struggle a little bit more puts more thought into how they do their activities. And so I think that when people may not be as gifted technically, they just tend to overcompensate by learning the anatomy better, by learning the different tricks to deal with different situations, and by really doing the deeper kind of analysis that it takes to be a good coach. And again, I think if you look at other disciplines, right, the best coaches are not necessarily the best athletes by any means. And in fact, the top athletes don't usually end up coaching. So true. Yeah, different skill sets. And one thing that really caught me by surprise was my very first initiation with your surgical coaching program was almost two years ago at your surgical coaching summit. And I actually got partnered up with a general surgeon and a general surgeon was reviewing an ovarian cystectomy that I was doing and we were practicing the coach-coachy relationship. And I actually really enjoyed partnering with somebody outside my field. It gave a whole new lens on the procedure. And it was interesting because the surgical techniques are the same, right? Like visualization and tension, countertension and good exposure and, and hemostasis, all those things are universal. And so I actually really enjoyed the collaboration between different subspecialties in that coaching relationship as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I have noticed the same thing. I think some of the best coaching sessions have been from people when they're crossing disciplines or they don't do the exact procedure that they're coaching someone on. And I think the reason for that is because if you were with another gynecologist who did that, there would have been so many assumptions made about what you were doing that you wouldn't have explicitly thought about some of the fundamentals that actually are really important. The problem is it's really hard, just like those Michigan surgeons didn't want anyone who was lower than them on the technical scale to coach them. It's really hard to get an attending surgeon to think that somebody who doesn't do their procedure can coach them in their procedure. But those are the sessions where people get out of the expert mindset right? They get into the inquiry because they're actually really curious because they don't know. So they really are a co-learner, which is the whole idea of being a coach. And so I think, again, this is another area where we need to continue our investigations and the more data that we can produce showing that in some ways this is beneficial, potentially the better it's going to be. Yeah, I totally agree. So next question, you yourself, have you ever served as a coachee yourself? Have you been coached before? I have. Tell me about that experience. What was the most difficult part of sitting on that other end? 
Well, for me, the most difficult part of sitting on the other end is that I'm continually critiquing the coach's approach and being like, this isn't coaching, this isn't coaching, because it's a new skill set. So I think, you know, so, so what's difficult for me is probably a little bit different than other folks. The other things that I've struggled with are the same things that lots of our people who participate struggle with, which is, you know, remembering to bring the video camera with me to the OR, remembering to talk to the team and the patient beforehand, figuring out how to get the video to my coach, you know, finding the time. I actually was supposed to have a coaching meeting with my coach yesterday that I had to cancel because I had an immediate deadline that I had to meet. And so so it's easy to push off even for somebody, you know, who is as dedicated to the concept as, as I am. And that's really what has led me to advocate so strongly for integrating coaching into surgical societies and other activities where we already are taking time out and away from our surgical practice. So we're not trying to add one more thing onto our plate because otherwise it's, it's just never going to happen that way. You know, I personally really like self-assessment and am really excited at the concept of having somebody look at what I'm doing and, and you know, trying to, to do it better. But it is a little scary, right? I mean, it's nobody's looked at me operating a long time except for the residents, and you can usually BS your way through with them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, or the scrub techs, but then I'm always asking them, you know, hey, how does my partner do this? And is there some way I could do this better rather than actually just going and talking with my partner about how they do it, right? It's, um, it's just not a part of, of our culture. And speaking of that culture, that was a perfect lead into my next question. So right now, surgeons, we don't have coaches, right? And I want to talk, I mean, in general, surgeons in general don't have coaches. And I want to get into the Academy for Surgical Coaching in just a moment. But how do you think that we go about even starting that culture change? And not only for surgeons, right? So changing that culture that for every surgeon, we should have a coach, but also for the OR team, right? I've heard you talk about different studies that are out there looking at not only um, making surgeons feel like it's okay to have a coach, but also the, the OR team not looking at a surgeon that has a coach like there's something wrong or uh, some kind of um, remediation. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we have tried very hard in all of our programs to make sure that coaching is implemented as a constructive, proactive approach to performance improvement rather than some kind of remediation. And I think the more that you can do that, the better. I think getting leaders to participate in coaching programs and being very vocal about the fact that they're doing it and the benefits that they're getting from it. So, you know, with our program at the Brigham, one of our first coaches was the chair of the department and the program director, right? We got the leadership to do it first. And so I think that that's one really important way. The other thing is, is that one of the most important tenets of coaching actually is that it has to be done willingly and voluntarily. And so I think if you try to force people into coaching, and we have had some people who've come to our programs at the suggestion of their institution, but they were open to it and they were, you know, able to adapt and accept it. But I think if you have somebody coming who doesn't actually believe in it, that they're not going to get anything out of it. And so my biggest concern and the reason that I want to push all of this video-based assessment and video coaching forward at the rate that I do is because I think that Industry is starting to develop the capacity to do this. Institutions don't think that the privileging and credentialing approaches that we have now are adequate. And so if we're not doing this, it's going to come from the outside, whether it's our institutions, whether it's payers, whether it's the government. 
somebody is going to start demanding that we have some kind of assessment like this. And it's much better if we're driving it through our surgical societies, through places like the American Board of Surgery, the American College of Surgeons, than if it's coming in from the outside, in which case it's much more likely to be interpreted as remediation, as some kind of looking for problems as opposed to looking for constructive ways to improve. That's a really, really good point. We'd much rather own it ourselves than having someone else bring it in. Because, I mean, we've let that happen to us in so many different areas around quality, right? And I think it's become a huge point of frustration for clinicians that people are defining quality measures, people are defining, um, you know, processes of care who've never taken care of a patient or never done the thing that they're trying to provide oversight for. And I think this is a place where we have to continue to really be proactive. And for coaching to truly work, there has to be a level of psychological safety, right? And confidentiality and trust because it's extremely vulnerable. Yep. I mean, like you said, I haven't, we haven't had people watch us operate truly in an analytical view since training, which can be, you know, seven years ago for me. So yeah, I, I agree. There has to be a, a willingness to, to, to agree to do this for it to work well. And I also think, again, that's where these, you know, state societies, surgical societies, quality collaboratives, places where you already have some level of trust, where you're already engaging with people is really the place to find coaches and coaches to match up as opposed to some total stranger. Exactly. Uh, and, and I also think, you know, some places have tried to do this at the institutional level. And I think that can be challenging in and of itself because you have biases about the people that you see every day that already you bring with you to the OR. You also all have tendencies to do things the same way. And so the things that are questioned and the um, insights that are able to be provided probably aren't going to be as great. But at the same time, you don't want to be coaching your competitor in your marketplace, right? Because we've had some trouble with institutions who've said, no way, we're not going to allow you to coach the guy across the street. So it leads to how do you get people matched up, you know, across distances. And so, you know, technology is getting better and better, but it's, you know, not quite there yet. And so one of the things that we're trying to test with our research project with the America's Hernia Society Quality Collaborative is, you know, do you need these personal interactions or can you just give somebody constructive feedback on a video without actually ever speaking to them? Um, and trying to figure out, you know, how much of coaching is just that we're so starved for feedback that any kind of feedback is going to be helpful versus we're feeling really isolated and burned out and we actually gain something from the interpersonal interactions of somebody who's there to help us. Right. Enough of the superficial relationships. Right. Right. We'll be right back after this message. All right, I want to talk about the Academy for Surgical Coaching. I'm so thrilled about this. This excites me so much. I can't believe it's real. I know, and we're so glad you're involved. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I'm absolutely honored and thrilled to be on, on your board. So this just went officially live early November. Mm-hmm. And talk to me about it. What exactly is this academy? Yeah, so one of the things, so I've been doing, you know, health systems research and point of care research now for 20 years. And one of the things that has started to drive me crazy over the last five years is that there is very little attention 
given to how these interventions as we develop them actually make their way into clinical practice and policy, right? We write a paper and that's kind of the end as a researcher of our journey and we come up with a new project and we write a new grant and we start something else. And somehow someone somewhere will magically read our paper and think it's important enough that they're going to try to integrate it into practice, right? And so what the academy really is, is our attempt to say, okay, well, there's all of this research going on and, you know, we are far from the only people doing research in surgical coaching. There's lots of different groups working in this area. But what we need is to have a purveyor that can take that research, make it into a product that can then be disseminated and implemented within the surgical community. And so the Academy for Surgical Coaching really launched out of the University of Wisconsin. We had developed the program there. And then really, it doesn't fit with the mission of a university to be providing the types of consulting services and educational activities that we're trying to do in terms of bringing people to surgical coaching. And so we started a nonprofit organization. So, um, you know, I think one of the other challenges sometimes is people questioning the motivation of the person who's starting these companies. And so, you know, we're really a nonprofit and really our goal is to increase people's access to surgical coaching. Amazing. So with this access, talk to me about the faculty development or the, um, the seminars to, to train people how to, how to coach appropriately. What kind of access are you allowing these people, these wannabe coaches, I should say? We try to identify, again, partners in an ideal world. We would love for surgical societies and quality collaboratives and these different groups to take ownership of these programs. And we would come in, consult with those groups, help them to figure out what a surgical coaching program looks like, train up their members who they select and identify and working with them to figure out how we do that, who the coaches are going to be, and then administer a coaching program under the auspices of that organization. Now, not everybody has access to those organizations, so we have done some things as I mentioned, within a department or an institution. But then there are other people who are in private practice or, you know, for some reason want to get coaching and don't have access to a program through one of those groups. And that's where they can come to us at the academy. And so the training that we have done traditionally has been through different programs, through these different existing organizations. However, we've started doing training programs uh, for individuals who are interested in coaching. And then we're also trying to identify people as we train them up that seem like they are good coaches and try to get them to come on board as individual coaches that we can help to deploy through the academy. Excellent. So... In regard to the video-based review of the surgeries, is the Academy planning on having some kind of platform to house those videos, or how are the coach and coachee going to be accessing those videos for surgical review? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there are a number of different companies out there that are developing these video-based platforms for a variety of different reasons, some of which align very well with coaching. And so the Academy has made a strategic decision when we did, when we launched the Academy that we wanted to partner for the technical aspects of coaching because we didn't want to be trying to develop this interactive platform when there are a number of companies out there that are doing it. And so um, we are in the process of exploring what companies are out there, what they can offer, and looking for who our partners will be. And I imagine we may have different partners for different programs. 
And again, there are a number of different startups that have this capacity. And so I think that on a project by project basis, as we bring together a surgical society or quality collaborative, part of it is going to be figuring out what is going to be their video based platform. Excellent. So the short answer is that we're planning on having some type of video cloud platform that will be all HIPAA compliant, de-identified videos to make it easy for the coach and coachee to collaborate, not necessarily in person, right? The idea is to do it remotely to make this really easy. Well, even if they do it in person, they would still need a place to upload the um, videos. Right. And one of the things that we think is really important and that actually the American Board of Surgery included as they were talking about how to reform continuous certification, and I think that coaching, if done right, can actually fit really well with what they're looking for, is that there has to be a needs assessment as part of coaching, right? So you have to set your goals, but in order to set your goals, I think you really need to understand where you're at in terms of your performance. And so I think video-based assessment is gaining a lot of traction in terms of using structured instruments like OSATs or NOTS, which looks at non-technical skills or goals. A number of surgical societies are actually developing their own assessments for specific uh, procedures within their specialty. And so as more and more of those come online, we're going to be able to do these baseline assessments to figure out where people are. And again, so that's going to take uploading the videos and having other surgeons review them and figure out sort of where they're starting from in order for them to set appropriate goals for coaching. I mean, video-based assessment makes so much sense to me from even from a training, like a residency standpoint or a fellowship graduation standpoint. And I mean, even um, staff who are out, like for instance, you know, I just changed positions from University of Wisconsin-Madison to Cleveland Clinic. And it just amazes me when, um, like during my interview process, nobody knows what type of surgeon I really am, right? So I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing to be a surgeon here. And I mean, there's, they have, to be honest, right, they don't know what kind of surgeon I am necessarily. Um, and so it's just interesting that, that that's not more of a commonality in our field to like review video and, tr- and, and trade video. It's, but that's not something that typically is done for graduation or for, um, or for interviewing or anything like that. Yeah. And, and again, this is where I think if we don't do it, somebody else is going to, right? So if you look back at the American Board of Surgery when it started, in order to actually become a diplomat of the American Board of Surgery, somebody came out to your institution and watched you operate. And they dropped that because it was not scalable to the level that they needed it to be as, as the number of surgeons in the country grew. But now we have the technology or we're in the process of developing the technology to make that scalable, right? So the idea that we need to really come back to that, I think, is really, really important. And then the other thing I would just want to mention is that other countries do this. So in Japan, for example, in order to become a certified surgeon there, you have to send in a video and it gets reviewed by a number of other surgeons who rate you. And they have, you know, a pretty stringent pass rate that you have to meet these criteria in order to to be a surgeon. And again, I think a big part of being a profession, right, and so many aspects of us being professionals is being taken away in the current healthcare environment is self-regulation. And so trying to figure out, again, how we can start to do this in a way that's not scary and punitive and remediation and all those things we talked about, but rather doing it in a constructive way that says, okay, you might not be where you want to be, but guess what? We can enroll you in a coaching program to help you get better. So true. So true. And I, now, that, now that you mentioned that, I think Mayo, Mayo Clinic actually sends 
surgeons out to watch other surgeons before hiring. I've heard of some other individual surgeons that do it, but yeah, in terms of it being an institutional practice, right? So where do you see surgical coaching going in the future? What's your ideal vision? You know, I personally really think that our professional societies are incredibly behind in our approach to learning and education. And I think that they really need to adapt the type of programming that they offer. And so I would love to see surgical coaching become a part of every surgical conference that we go to for all the reasons that we've talked about earlier in in our conversation. I would love to see the American Board of Surgery see this as an important part of continuing certification. Again, I think it, I think it makes sense. Um, And ideally, if I had, you know, were able to design a future the way that I wanted to see it, you know, we would all be recording our cases and looking at them on a regular basis. And every couple of years, we would participate in a coaching program to get external feedback to, you know, refresh us and to anchor us in how we are compared to our peers. And then, you know, you'd move on to continuing to do your own self-assessment in between those intermittent coaching sessions. So, you know, I would love to see video-based assessment become an integrated part of what we do. And coaching really, I see as something that people can voluntarily participate in if they want to improve where they are. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm honored to be part of this mission with you. I think, <laughs> I think with the steady, unrelenting pressure, we can make it happen. Yes. So I, I, I love your ideas. So one last plug for the Academy for Surgical Coaching. Talk to me about the summit this summer. What dates are the summit? Are they scheduled yet? Yes. So we're going to have another summit for surgical coaching June 25th through June 27th here in Madison, Wisconsin. We had one a couple years ago and it was really successful in just bringing together the different people that are doing research in this area, bringing some of these industry people together who are building some of these platforms we need and really getting people together to talk about where we're going and where we should be going as a research area. The other thing that the summit will have is an opportunity to go through our coach training program. Um, And so again, for people that are individuals who are interested in going through the program and getting trained as a surgical coach, um, that opportunity will be there as well. Excellent. So for all of our listeners, check out our show notes. I will have the Academy for Surgical Coaching website there. And so if you're interested in being a coach or a coachee or more information about the summit, please go to the website. We have a link that you can put in your email and um, receive update notifications as they come in. So please check us out. All right, Dr. Greenberg, I think that is all the time that we have today. But thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. So thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for all you're doing to help promote surgical coaching. And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.